What's good, dudes? It's your boy, the Sean Mack of Stealing Jokes from Jack Slack, and it's the Spokes and Chokes podcast. I'm Chard, and my apologies for the echo chamber. This is not the usual place I do the podcast, but I had to get something out for uh, UFC 280. Shit's like ridiculous, and also maybe might get me into double digit views. Who knows? But, um,. I gotta get through the recap of the previous card first. We're just gonna blast through it quick because there's a lot to talk about on 280. Let's just jump right into this shit. At the very beginning of the card, Pete Rodriguez crushed Mike Jackson as he fucking should. And uh, we're all happier for it. And hopefully now we can get that guy out of the UFC because he's just has the shittiest attitude. And no one likes it. Because, you know, there is a type of shit talk and a type of disrespect that is likable, that people enjoy, including myself. But Mike Jackson was not just disrespectful to opponents, but disrespectful to the organization, everything really. And not in a logical way, just in a I'm going to be a shit kind of way. So, nice to see... That happened. P. Rodriguez is just a, you know, regional banger. Throws heavy. Loves to just get in there and get rowdy right away, which is a great, great fun kind of fighter. You know, took a great opportunity, threw a knee after a big flurry of punches and KO'd Mike Jackson pretty quickly. And on the mic afterwards, had a really great attitude about being like, oh yeah, my corner just started yelling knee knee. And I went, okay, and just kind of did it. He took very little credit in pretending to be smart or something. He was just like, oh, okay, it just worked. I'm stoked. My corner's awesome. So Pete's got a good attitude. Hopefully will be exciting in the future and won't fall victim to his style in that hopefully he won't gas out quickly in future fights. We'll see. Who knows? Next was Tatsuro Taira, Japanese fighter, and he was just clearly much, much better on the ground than old CJ Vergara, but he did cool things. He was very slick with it. His takedowns, he does a really nice inside trip to back take that was really quick, Um, and then he spent a lot of time on the back switching up the body triangle so that CJ couldn't get out regardless of you know what side they rolled to good slick fundamentals just solid shit and then once he got cj nice and comfortable defending the choke he threw the leg over and went to the went to the arm bar from the back and got the finish looked great you know he's a great new prospect for the division and should be a lot of fun it's nice to see japanese fighters because they're few and far between and it's cool to see one that Hopefully we'll have some good success in the future. He's definitely got the skills for it. So, And he's so young. He's got so much time to get better. The guy's 22. Um, and he's already got that physicality going for him. Hopefully he doesn't start having weight problems as he gets older, which happens to a lot of fighters that start this young, is they end up having to move up a weight division or they keep cutting uh, for too long even after their body starts refusing to do it. And then they end up having issues doing that. But uh, hopefully it works out for him. It was funny to see him in the post fight because I suspect 
he has decent English. I mean, the very beginning of what do you say? He goes, I'm super happy. And then looks at the translator. He kind of glances over. And I don't know this for sure, but I get the impression that he looks over and sees the translator and then feels bad and goes, okay, I'll talk Japanese. <laughs> and then he starts speaking Japanese. Um, but seems cool. Always love another injection of energy into, uh, I believe he's 125. God, I feel bad now. It's been a few days since I watched that card, so. I oftentimes will get 125 and 135 mixed up because they're very similar in terms of just like sheer level of pace and chaos. No, it is 125. Okay, I'm right. <laughs> but yeah, um, dude's rad. Should be good. Pierre Rodriguez versus Sam Hughes. Um, pretty fun fight. Had a good pace. Uh, was decently close in terms of strikes landed, things like that. Um, and the directionality of the fight was like decently back and forth. But it was pretty clear that there was a physicality gap in Pierre's favor, as well as the fact that Pierre was mixing in the bodywork. And that was kind of the story of the fight. My lady turned to me in this, during this fight and basically just said, I knew this one was going to be decent because there were actually things happening. <laughs> That's the scale she uses for if a female fight is worth watching now. And, you know, I can't blame her. Joanna Brito versus Ander, uh, Lucas Alexander. Joanna Brito was what he always is and is just all gas, no brakes. Just getting after it. And uh, it was funny. <laughs> it was funny. Dominic Cruz talking about like, oh, it's actually a good thing that uh, Anderson's on his feet standing with Brito on his back because uh, I forget exactly. Oh, yeah, because Brito is going to burn out his legs with the body triangle. And you go, well, that's one way to think about it. But another way to think about it, too, is when you're standing with someone on your back, you have more to think about. Because not only are you trying to defend the choke and trying to unlock the leg so you can get out, you're also trying to make sure you don't fall over, like, say, onto your face. Um, so you're also trying to stand, so it's an extra thing to think about. So it makes defending the choke or escaping the body triangle a little bit harder. So it's a, it's a give and take. It's not a guaranteed better position. But obviously it was a bad position for Anderson in this case because... Joannis and Brito got the choke, kind of yanked back and like they went to the ground and got the tap pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, he's a ball of chaos and those always, those kind of guys always make for fun fights. So you love to see more of that, more of that guy. Next fight was a little weird. Nick Maximov and Jacob Malkoon. Because Jacob Malkoon... He's friends with Robert Whitaker. He's been a training partner with him forever. Aussie guy, funny. You know, the usual things you like about those dudes. And his jab was money. Overall, his striking was pretty good, although he got dropped by a left hook. And Nick Maximov's not, not really known for his power, but uh, got caught, recovered well, continued uh, overall doing the better work. And then Nick Maximov stepped wrong and fucked up his knee 
and it was the knee of his what ended up being his rear leg. To the it was it was bad enough that he was wincing whenever he put too much weight on it um, throughout the entire rest of the fight, and Jacob Malkoon just had no confidence in throwing any kicks to the rear leg, which. You would think that's a pretty big gap in your game. And then in the post-fight interview, uh, after he won the decision, he said, like, oh, yeah, like, I'm not really that comfortable throwing kicks yet. And you go, wait a second, man. Why are... What? You're not that comfortable throwing kicks. So you're just, like, a wrestler who's just learned how to punch. And you're, like, kind of piecemeal, like, learning piece by piece to be able to make the rest of this stuff happen. It's just a very concerning thing, um, despite the fact that his hands were good and he was landing good shit and really took over the fight after that injury happened. Man, it's just as well as like his takedowns were great. He has a great single leg, especially pivoting off the fence and pulling Maximov away from the fence when he got him down. But um, man, uh, and straight punches, primarily straight punches, not a lot of hooking. Um, which, you know, can't be mad at. Primarily straight punches are, they tend to be the most effective if you're going to just pick a punch to use, especially if you have a longer reach or if you're in a bigger weight class where hooks take longer to happen. Um, but Jacob Malcoon looked pretty good, but it also is concerning at the same time for his future, just being able to deal with kickers. Um, cause if he wasn't willing to try to kick a vulnerable, a very vulnerable leg to the point of making a guy wince, then what happens if he faces a guy with really good movement that he has to really think about kicking just to be able to touch the guy? It's concerning for his future, but it's nice for him to have a win. Also, Nick Maximov is that weird, he's that guy from the Diaz camp that... They talk about like he's this like amazing fighter and he's not that he, he hasn't been proven yet. And he hasn't shown that he's on that same kind of level as the Diaz brothers. So we'll see how he re- we'll see what how bad his knee is and see how quickly he can get back in there, get some more experience. Uh next is Mana Martinez and Brandon Davis. They had a fun, wholesome fight that felt very sparring session-ish. Uh, but it was good fun, and it was a split decision that you can't really be mad at. It was back and forth. It was cool. Misha Serkinov and Alonzo Menafield. Man, I didn't know Misha Serkinov was moving up to 205, but man, Alonzo Menafield is a tough order if you're moving up just because he's already like such a muscle monster at 205. I mean, you look at the freaking tits on the dude. And they're pointing at the ground because his chest is so big. And I like him, but it also makes me sad when another Canadian fighter, I mean, I know he's not born in Canada, but he reps Canada and has for a long time. Another Canadian fighter just like coming up short. And it's, if I get the feeling, it's the same as being like a, a fan of, not even a fan, but like, wanting a Canadian hockey team to win the Stanley Cup, it's just never going to happen. It hasn't happened since the night, like early 90s, I think. And it's just like, it just makes you sad to even try to hope at this point. So 
but I can't help myself but like be like, oh, it's a Canadian fighter. Can they do well, please? <sighs> anyway, let's get into the real best fight on this card. And it was Rafael Asuncao and Victor Henry. Man, I was going into this being like, hey, Rafael Asuncao is a veteran. Yeah, he's getting older. And yeah, he's had a rough go of it as of late. But you can't count the guy out. He's tough as nails. And he has given hard matchups to a ton of really good guys. So it's one of those things where it was, like I said last time, the biggest question here was, is a Sun Sao washed? And the answer was no. The answer was very much no. Uh, Rafael Asuncao looked fantastic, quite possibly better than he's ever looked. And, man, I can't wait to see more of him as this, like, newly energized and, frankly, a little bit more aggressive than previous and harder-hitting Rafael Asuncao. Because Victor Henry, his last opponent, was another savvy veteran Brazilian guy who hits really hard on the counter. And he just overpowered and pressured the guy so hard that the counter stopped working because there was too much activity. And he tried to do that to a Sun Sao and very quickly dropped his pace hard because he got hit a few times. And he didn't show it too much. But clearly when he got hit and got clipped, it hurt him and it made him back off. Well, another thing that made him back off too, or at least not push as hard or be more hesitant to throw strikes, was just how much a Sun Sao was switching stances. Sun Sao was switching stances, it seemed like almost every five seconds. And as all the best sand stance switchers do, he was throwing a variety of strikes from each stance. Sometimes you'll see guys, they'll switch, a stan they'll switch stances, but then after they switch, they'll always throw the same strike from the opposite stance. Like you'll see a guy switch stances and then throw a spinning kick, or they'll switch stances and then just throw jabs or straights from that stance. And then a Sun Sao, while he doesn't jab terribly often, and when he does, it's usually a 1-2, he threw both one-twos from each stance, as well as lead, lead foot leg kicks from each stance, as well as back foot body kicks from each stance. And so him switching, Victor didn't have the opportunity to know what was coming when he saw a switch. So it made him a lot more hesitant to start throwing, and it made it a lot harder to pressure as much as he did against his last opponent, which... I feel so bad for not remembering the name of. Um, oh yes, how could I forget? Honey Barcelos. He just fought a little bit ago and he looked great. Um, Honey Barcelos. He was... Victor Henry was able to overpower him with just hard pressure and constant action. Um, as well as unorthodox movement and funky stuff from the ground. Um, I mean... You should expect funky stuff from the ground with a guy who has a Boston Crab tattoo on his arm. Like, if for those who don't know, it's the Walls of Jericho submission for, that uh, Chris Jericho would use in the WWE. Um, but the Boston Crab, it's, it's a funny submission, but it is real. It is real. It does work. It's not easy to set up, but it is a real thing. 
and it's just a great like funky thing to have tattooed on you um and he he bills himself as a catch wrestler um which is always cool and makes perfect sense because he's from josh barnett's camp and josh barnett's been like a catch wrestling advocate for forever as well as josh barnett for those who don't remember has amazing clinch work um and just a solid ground game josh barnett go back and watch josh barnett's fights if you want to see a heavyweight with amazing clinch game and amazing like fence pressure you want to see the template for pushing a guy up against a fence and being effective with strikes there watch josh barnett because he really does a great job doing that stuff and it's it's awesome but moving back onto this fight Rafael Asuncao just he was just able to respond with variety and everything he threw would he would hit really hard with and it would make Victor Henry hesitate and not want to commit too much to really bursting in or blitzing and uh oftentimes Victor would like throw kicks instead and Asuncao on a numerous occasions caught kicks and answered back with strikes or every time they would clinch up Asuncao would be the guy to throw the strike on the break um just seizing every possible opportunity I mean one of the cases Victor Henry throws a kick throws a head kick right next to the fence whiffs and actually trips and falls over and Asuncao jumps on it jumps on him so quickly that for a second the announcers thought that it was a takedown because he just he seized the moment and seized the opportunity instantly um just being a savvy veteran and you love to see it because a lot of guys including the heavy hands guys thought this was a glue factory match and that it was going to retire a sunsau and it was absolutely the opposite and it was really showing how much a savvy veteran can really bounce back after losses and show why they were in the position they were in in the first place. And you'd love to see it. Who knows how much longevity Rafael Sunsau actually has left? Because sometimes you'll see a fight like this and then, you know, a fighter will then go back to being, you know, kind of hit and miss. But this one, I really hope he continues showing this kind of prowess in the future because it was a pleasure to watch. And much like Paul Felder said after he caught a, I believe it was a hook kick, a Sunsau caught a hook kick and then immediately drove, and bear in mind, this is with a Sunsau's back to the fence. He catches the kick, starts throwing right hands and landing them on on Victor and hit him the first one it hits so hard that you swear like the people outside the ring gay splattered with sweat and he hits him with probably five or six just consecutive right hands while pushing him all the way across the octagon to the other side and then landing a takedown um it was just brilliant work and immediately after that happens you hear Paul Felder just go, no intelligent commentary. It was just the exact same reaction I had watching the fight. And he just goes, that was awesome. <laughs> and that's the best, 
that's really the best way to sum up that fight because it was it was awesome and it doesn't it doesn't mean bad things for victor either victor showed a lot of cool stuff and i'm excited to see him in the future as well it's just it just shows that he's not going to steamroll through the division like some people might have thought jordan wright and dusko todorovic uh man dusky he's a tough guy and he can be tricky sometimes and in this one he wasn't that tricky dusky just he got badly out wrestled in the first round and but he managed to stay active enough to keep jordan moving and burning energy without getting into too much trouble or getting beaten up too badly and then in the second round he just came out dumping the clip just like everything he had just starts absolutely throwing nonstop, just like blitzing like in Ganu versus Rosenstrike, but like for two minutes straight, just nonstop throwing as hard as he can and never giving Jordan Wright a chance to breathe the whole time in the set, like starting in the second round. It looked like a completely different fight. It was crazy. And eventually Jordan Wright just broke and couldn't handle it anymore Um, because he'd already like tired himself out a bit from the grappling in the first round and Dusky just capitalized on it and just put his entire being into just destruction in the second round and it was rad Cub Swanson versus Jonathan Martinez man um, so last episode I thought Jonathan Martinez was moving up because he's fought at 145 a few times. I didn't realize that Cub was moving down to 135. And oh boy, um, doing that at 38 years old is just, it's just such a bad idea. It's not that he looked bad. He actually looked pretty good. Um, And ultimately, I feel the main reason he lost was because the knee... That uh, that Jonathan Martinez kicked is the one. It's the same knee that he had torn to pieces against Jake Shields when he gra- when he had that grappling match and uh, had his knee torn in a knee reap and just had it. I think he was out for eight months or something, maybe more. But he had his ACL and his meniscus torn in that grappling match. And when you have that happen, even after surgery, those things are almost never 100% again. Jonathan Martinez kicks really hard for 135 and kicked him directly in the knee, like straight on it. And Cub didn't pick up his weight off the ground, so it was planted. So it just tweaked the knee to the side, knocking him to his butt three times in a row. And the third time he just like, he was just rolling on the ground in agony and i'm sure that thing is wrecked again which is really sad to see because cub actually did look pretty damn good in the fight and was landing good landing the harder strikes and but he was looking a little slow which you're gonna at you know 38 years old especially cutting to a division you've never cut to before so it's it's a give and take because i I've always liked Cub Swanson. 
He's a fan favorite for a reason, both because he's a cool guy as a person and he has a really fun fight style and he's very creative and does a lot of unique things. But he's getting old and it, it yeah, it sucks seeing your seeing fighters get old and slow down and have trouble and ugh. And it also means Jonathan Martinez is probably gonna do really well for a while, cause he just he has the physicality for 135 with all these crazy murderers at that division. And um man. That's a really good name to have on your resume, resume, especially how good Cub looked in the first round. Because he looked like Cub Swanson. He looked like a, a legitimate threat. So, that it's like, it's sad, and I knew it was probably going to be sad the second I found out he was cutting to 135. Um... But and it's not hopeless, but I feel as though he's kind of trading one position of being a gatekeeper at 145 for another position of being a gatekeeper at 135 at around probably the similar level around like the top 15 to top 10. So it feels unnecessary to just cut that weight to not be to not progress further in the division you're in. Um, obviously, he was hoping to have the kind of success that Jose Aldo had. But man, Jose Aldo did it at... While yes, Jose Aldo was more of a veteran and had a lot more time under his belt and a lot more experience, Jose Aldo was a younger man and physically closer to his prime than Cub is. So doing that made more sense for Jose, as well as Jose just being one of the best fighters we've ever seen. I could gush about how great he was for a long time, but we're going to move on to Alexa Grasso and Viviana Rujo. Not Vivian, sorry. No, yeah, it is. Sorry. Alexa Grasso and Viviana Rujo. Um, I've just been saying Arujo for a while because it's such a long name if you say both. But they had the main event, and it ended up being a worthy main event because Alexa Grasso has great hands, and it was a good, like, kind of knockdown, drag out, just like mostly standing, brawlish kind of fight with uh, a lot of back and forth, a lot of trades. And the first round was the, I would argue, the first round is probably the most even round. They both landed a lot of good stuff. Obviously, Arujo was the most fresh and was able to land hardest out of the entire fight whereas Grasso tended to land at a like similar power kind of the whole time um the second round Grasso was very much like holding the initiative and landing first and landing the better strikes um Arujo slowed a bit and starts throwing a lot less in combination starting to do a lot more single strikes and that's kind of what ended up being more of her problem through the rest of the fight was not throwing in combination often enough because she would oftentimes land a good jab or land a decent cross and then just stop and let it let it be where she could have thrown more and had more success. Obviously, doing your first five-round fight, which I believe it was the first for both of them, is something where you're going to be more inclined to save your energy 
Um, but it ended up being a bit of her downfall in this fight, just not being active enough um, in terms of landing more strikes. Because I believe through some of the middle rounds, Grasso was outlanding her two to one. She did get a takedown towards you know later in the later in the round, but Grasso's defense was good, and she timed a bridge well from side control to just kind of pop pop the bridge and kind of rolled and kind of half swept just enough to get up. Um, it was just good good timing and showing that. She has good physicality in the division. Um, they were pretty evenly matched in terms of just strength and ability there. And then she continued to just land good strikes through the last minute of the round. Uh, third round is more of the same, but without takedowns, as Grasso just starts to vary her strikes a bit more. Starts added, like she's been body jabbing through the whole fight, and now she's starting to throw a lead hook as well as the body jab as well as landing more leg kicking and just her confidence was clearly growing to like vary up the strikes more and have a little more freedom to kind of throw more things as she was worried less and less about the takedown as Arujo was getting a little more tired um, and not being as effective with the takedown. So that was cool. Fourth round showed less activity from both fighters with Arujo landing the better strikes in the first half of the round, and then Grasso landing the better strikes in the second half of the round. Uh, it ended with a failed takedown attempt from Arujo at the end. That one actually might be the closest round. That one and the first one are the close ones. But then, fifth round, Grasso just landed the better strikes, and more often, in addition to more failed takedowns from Arujo. So, Grasso takes the decision. Looks pretty good. There was very, very, like, very little fainting going on, as Dom Cruz pointed out. It was a lot of just, like, raw throwing. But Grasso's got hands. She's got hands. They look good. She had good variety. And she was quick. She didn't um, telegraph too much. So she was able to land. When she threw first, she was able to land most of the time. And, yeah, it's going to be cool to see her continue in the division. It's It's just nice to see fighters with good technique and with good hands at 125 because 125 historically has been such a bad division. So it's cool to see more and more fighters there that are fun and or good. Obviously fun, I'm talking about <laughs> Meatball McCann, but uh, it's, it's cool to see more fighters be good there as well. It's a slow process, but I feel like women's 125 is just generally slowly getting better across the board which is just gonna happen as a division ages and because you're gonna have more and more new talent coming in just as every division is de is developing you're gonna have more and more talent coming in that are training for that division specifically from the beginning rather than having you know people from other divisions just kind of trickle into it and just having women's mma progressing over time and just having more and more women getting into MMA from younger ages. And so it's just going to it's just going to progress and get better over time. So it's nice to see women's 125 be a bit less trash. All right, enough of that. Let's talk about what everybody's here for. Everybody is here for UFC 280. 
That's the big one. That's the exciting one. That is ridiculously stacked. And it's also the one I have no notes for because I'm just going to talk off the cuff about it because it's cool and fun and uh, it's mostly fighters that everybody will know. And we're just going to start from the top because it's, you know, it's the one everybody's most curious about and most, I would almost say, baffled by because Charles Oliveira and Islam Makachev has such ridiculously different styles where Islam is a very measured but but likes to you know throw spinning kicks and things as far as being on the feet. He's a good striker. Um, he's not necessarily a big power puncher or you know a, has a, it doesn't necessarily have a ton of variety. It's mainly just crisp one twos, the occasional hooks, and then wild spinning shit. Um, at least that's what he was for a very long time. And then maybe he's different now, but we haven't seen it in a bit because he's been so grappling heavy lately. And obviously his wrestling is very much of the Khabib style, very just smothery and ground and pounding and things like that. He's, I think he's, he's a little bit less active from control positions as far as ground and pound than Khabib was. Um, but part of it is he's just not quite as physical as Khabib was. Khabib was like absurdly strong and big for the division. Um, and I think he probably felt it coming that making weight was going to become even more of a problem as he started getting older. And th there's a ton of factors that can go into why Khabib called it a day so early. Obviously, I don't want to take away from the fact that his dad died and that was such a massive thing for him. But obviously, I feel there's a ton of other reasons too, especially with how much he talks about and disrespects fighters that have a bunch of losses, like Oliveira, where he very much didn't want to risk losing and messing up his perfect record. Um, but man, Charles Oliveira is... He's a juggernaut, man. He just... His willpower has dramatically changed since moving to Shooterbox. That camp is just gym warriors that are going in there and having crazy wars all the time. And it was clear that that made a massive difference for Oliveira because he's always had the skills. He's always had amazing jiu-jitsu. He's always had pretty good striking and decent knockout power. But... His, his mental game wasn't really on point. He had a lot of issues where he would, when he started, things started to go a little bit badly for him, he would kind of mentally break. And now, Oliveira, since moving to Shootbox and having those crazy gym wars and just building his confidence up to where it's like goes, you know, like, oh, well, this shit's nothing to me because I've been through all this hell. He's really transformed as a fighter. And it's not as though he's become more durable. He hasn't. He's, I mean, he gets hurt in almost every fight he's in lately. But, man, has he really just... You have, he's one of those guys, you have to kill him. You have to kill him to get him out of there. Because if you don't, it's like Tony Ferguson in... At the, you know, Tony Ferguson versus Kevin Lee. It's like, you're going to explode. You're going to desperately try to get him out of there. And then if you fail, he will 
if you fail, he'll come back even stronger than he was. And Oliveira is very much like in the exact same spirit as prime Ferguson at that peak of his streak. And Oliveira also hits really hard in addition to having fantastic jiu-jitsu. And part of the big reason Oliveira is very hard to hold down is he threatens a lot of submissions that aren't meant to actually be submissions. They're meant to create movement and create openings for scrambles and for potential future uh, potential future submissions. I mean, Oliveira attacks an armbar from the ground from the bottom that is very very rare to actually work, but it's threatening enough that you have to do something about it. You can't just ignore it. So what you do then is. If you start pulling your arm out, then it creates the space and he can get some movement going. And all of a sudden, your top pressure is massively reduced. And he does the same thing with leg attacks. He'll attack a heel hook or a leg lock. And basically, it's like, if you don't address it, there can be serious problems. Because he's slick enough with it that it's hard to just fold in and posture in on his leg lock to then neutralize it and start ground and pounding. So a lot of Oliveira's game, in addition to being a good wrestler himself, has to do with less about neutralizing a neutralizing takedowns and more about neutralizing top pressure and creating a lot of danger for anyone who's grappling with him. And this fight is so curious in that way where Oliveira... If there's too much time on the feet, Oliveira most likely will hurt Islam because Islam's been hurt before. He's not made of granite like Khabib was, where the only thing that could hurt Khabib was a prime Michael Johnson who was like sparking everybody. Uh, And, you know, Michael Johnson at the time just was hit like a truck. But Islam is not like that. Islam is, while he is very tough, he's not that like impenetrable wall that Khabib was. And if he spends too much time on the feet, bad things will happen. Especially now that Charles has good eyes. Because he just had his eyesight fixed. So you don't want to get touched by that guy right now. Especially, I mean, you see what he's been doing to other very tough guys. I mean, Justin Gaethje's not a guy that gets knocked out, really. And Justin Gaethje was like, I mean, recently been talking about how crazy it was that he was, he'd was he never been hit harder by anybody else. Which is serious, because Gaethje's had some crazy wars with a lot of people. So that fight is just really exciting. It's so difficult to pick somebody. Because if Oliveira's scrambles and submission threats aren't effective enough... He could absolutely get stuck on bottom and get ground and pounded for multiple rounds at a time. Um, I don't think... I don't suspect that Oliveira is going to get finished if he loses. I feel the fight will either go Oliveira wins by stoppage or Islam wins by decision. That's just my gut feeling. But man... And, and I think the only way Oliveira loses by a finish is if he gets tired and it's a later round but man he's just so dangerous that i i have to pick Oliveira because he's he has so much danger from so many places and it's not like 
And his submission threat, it's not like Dustin Poirier where he'll, like, you know, snatch up a guillotine and then it's like, well, if that doesn't work, I'm fucked. It's Oliveira's submission game is very fluid and very, like, some submissions don't even serve as submissions. They serve as positional advantage creations. Like, they're, like I was talking about with the armbar, like, Oliveira's game is deeper. And more intelligent than a ground game of a Dustin Poirier or the ground game of a Dan Hooker. It's it's very, very dangerous because you're going to have a hard time figuring out what he's actually trying to do. And you're having to address various threats. But I have to pick Charles. I can't entirely pinpoint exactly why, but I think it's just he's more dangerous in more ways. And he's got that X factor where he's just been such a killer lately. And he's ha- he has that willpower to where if something goes bad, he's just going to come back harder. He's kind of an enigma right now, despite being very scary looking. Which, honestly, that kind of helps part of it too. Especially his like absurd level of confidence coming into this card where he's just like feels untouchable. And all the people saying like, "Oh, if he beats Islam, then we're guy. We gotta have the Khabib. We gotta have Khabib come back." It's like, dude, Khabib is like two hundred and fifteen pounds right now. He's not coming back. As well as, as the more time goes by, the more risky it is that he'll lose his winning streak. Let him be. He he did the damn thing. He quit early so he could have his impeccable record. Let him have it. He's not coming back. Let, just let Khabib do his thing. If Islam loses, he's probably just going to go, oh, well, I guess it's Charles's time. Like, that's probably all that's going to happen if that happens. I don't think Khabib's going to come back to avenge his friend. He's just going to be like, well, bummer. <laughs> okay, let's move on because there's a lot of good fights on this thing and I want to try to talk about all of them without spending a million hours trying to do it. Next one is Aljamain Sterling and TJ Dillashaw. Man, that one is another one that's really hard to pick just because TJ Dillashaw is a veteran. He's smart. He has really crisp striking and really unorthodox striking. He has a lot of... He stance switches a ton. He throws hard from both stances as well as he has unorthodox weird head movement. He does a lot of shit where he kind of squares his shoulders with his hands kind of even and moves his head up and down a lot. He's a very like he's very hard to predict, um, and Aljo is also like an unorthodox, like funky, weird striker, but he's less good at it, um, and he doesn't hit as hard as TJ does. But the, I think the biggest question people tend to have with this fight is going to be in the grappling, because Aljo, as we saw in the Peter Yan fight, Aljo is a nightmare to have on your back. His control is impeccable. Once he gets your back, at least against Peter, once he gets your back, he's just going to be there for a while. And he's just going to be a pain in your ass. Now, TJ obviously having a ton of experience and has dealt with a lot of jujitsu guys, he's going to have a he's going to be better equipped to deal with someone like that than uh Peter Jan was. But he's also older, and he's not going to be as uh, as much of a physical force 
as Peter Jan was. Regardless of how good a shape he says he's in, he's significantly older, been through a lot of wars, been through a lot of shit. I mean, shit. That last fight he had against uh, Sandhagen was a hell of a thing, and he had a bunch of injuries from it. Just that alone is evidence to his... The increasing awareness of T.J. Dillashaw's age, despite his incredible proficiency and consistency, that he is he is a great fighter every time you see him. And he's also a good wrestler. But uh, who knows what we're going to see. I mean, a lot of it's going to come down to, I, I strongly suspect that Dillashaw is going to pressure, um, much like he did against Sanhagen, to try and negate the takedown ability of Sterling because Sterling tends to do better when he can shoot, when he can pressure first and then shoot against the fence or just pressure first and shoot for takedowns on his own terms uh, without having to shoot reactive takedowns. It's not that he reactive takedowns are bad, but he tends to be more comfortable when he's doing it over on his own pressure. Um, so I, I feel as though TJ is probably going to come out aggressive and try to be the one that pushes forward. It's just going to be a crazy one, and that one's a toss-up. It's really hard to pick. Um, I'm going to give the edge to Aljo just on the fact that TJ had two years off, came back against Sanhagen, and immediately, while had a good fight, had a bunch of injuries, and arguably—it was a split. It was, it was a tough one to say that he definitely won. So there's a lot of question marks with— TJ Dillashaw right now. So that one's but at the same time, it's Bantamweight. It's a guaranteed banger. It's high lit, it's high level Bantamweight. It's gonna be good. You know it's gonna be good. So regardless of what happens, even if TJ looks a little washed, it's gonna be a good fight anyway. Then immediately afterwards, we have another Bantamweight fight, which is a weird one. Because Sean O'Malley versus Peter Yan feels like a short notice fight, but it isn't. Because Sugar Sean is ranked number 11. And the only reason he's ranked number 11 is because he fought Pedro Munoz for a couple minutes. And had his legs kicked out from under him for a while. Landed some jabs. And then I poked Pedro so badly that the fight was stopped. It's very strange to... I mean, the rankings are bullshit anyway. I mean, they moved his ranking up to 11 basically so that it didn't look as bad on the paper, on the piece of paper, because Peter Jan is still technically number one contender. So having those two... If you have Sean O'Malley at like 14 or something... And then fighting Peter Yan at number one, that just looks bad on the poster. So you got to move him up a couple spots, even though even if he doesn't necessarily deserve it. But you know, it's it's bantamweight. It's top ten fighters in any division, really. Where like, if the stylistic matchup works, somebody who's really low rank can always find something, make something happen. I mean, the greatest example you could ever ask for is GSP by Aljamain Sterling's coach, Matt Serra. 
GSP getting knocked out by Matt Serra is like the most unexpected, absurd thing that can happen. But it's fighting. These things can happen. So it's like, yeah, Peter Jan is technically so high-ranked that you shouldn't give Sean O'Malley a chance. But if the stylistic matchup is there, and if circumstances are right, Sean could win. And then, who knows, they're going to probably throw him in there with whoever wins between Aljo and TJ. And then you've just got Chito Vera sitting in the wings being like, well, I'll get it eventually. Because <laughs> Chito Vera just keeps Yoel Romero-ing people. Um, just like... <laughs> Chito Vera is such a Yoel Romero. Just like, yeah, you can hit me a bunch, but eventually towards the end of this round, I will just hit you with a bomb and everyone will only remember that. <laughs> and... Um, like that fight with Rob Font was absolutely hilarious with Cheeto Vera, but Cheeto Vera's beaten Sean O'Malley, despite all the excuses Sean O'Malley likes to pull out. Um, he could have fought back after his leg got shut down by that kick, but instead he kind of just kind of folded a bit. And, uh... You know, there are fighters that have fought through that before. Henry Cejudo fought through that before. Um, you know, having being kicked in that nerve that shuts your leg down. Henry Cejudo's fought through it. Um, Jimmy Crute had that happen to him. And he immediately went like, okay, guess I'm wrestling now. And fought through it damn well. And then he was like, it, that, one, that fight was such a bummer because I really like Jimmy Crute. Um... Part of the reason is, well, A, he's a funny Australian man. And B, he has uh, two nerd tattoos on his chest. One of which is the Earthbender symbol on his chest, which is super appropriate because he's like a burly dude with short, stocky arms. Um, him and Robert Whitaker joke about him having like T-Rex arms. But um, Jimmy Crude had that happen to him and he did everything he possibly could to continue. And was effectively fighting before the end of the round. And then his the feeling in his leg didn't quite come back by the end of the break in between rounds. And the commission stopped it. Which I think was a shame. Because he knew that the feeling was coming back. And that he was going to be fine. And by the time the decision was read, he was like 100%. Which is tough. So... Especially because he was fighting Anthony Lionheart, which is a great name to have on your resume if you can pull out that win. And so that was like rough for him to lose that opportunity. But, um, you know, the point I'm getting at is that fighters have fought through that before. Having that nerve hit and having their leg shut down. And Sean O'Malley didn't do that. And ended up getting finished. And at the end of the day, pretending that that's not a real loss just makes you look like a dickhead. Um, but, hey, he he is a very good fighter. Despite my opinions on his goofy, you know, general dickishness. Um, he is a very good fighter. This fight should be very interesting because it is such a ridiculous size and dimensions mismatch. Not mismatch, but like, they have a ridiculous size and dimensions difference. Um, Peter Jan is 
short, stocky, tough as shit, hits hard. And Sean O'Malley is lanky and like laughably lanky for 135. And he also has good pop and has been KOing a bunch of people. So we'll see if his durability can hold up. Apparently he's been building some muscle and he's been, you know, really growing into his body and his durability has gotten better. We'll find out for sure against Peter Jan. We saw what Peter Jan did to Jose Aldo. And, you know, you couldn't ask for a more destructive fighter to really give Sean O'Malley a good test outside of if John Lineker was still here. But, you know, John Lineker's over in one championship doing work and, you know, being the 135 champ over there or whatever their weird division actually is over there. Um, But he's doing work over there. And you like to see it because he has a really fun fight style and he hits so hard. But, um, yeah, we got some 135 bangers at the top of this card. And then we also have a lightweight banger between fighters that the average kind of, I hate to use the term casual um, because it's just so overused and kind of unjustly used a lot of the time. But to your average fight watcher that's not really down, not really into it, Benil Dariush and Mateusz Gamrot aren't necessarily like fighters that jump off the page. But man, this fight's going to be great. Mateusz Gamrot is... I mean, he just had that fight with Armin Sarukian that was one of the best things I've ever seen. Like, legitimately. He's just so technically proficient everywhere and could put on a ridiculous pace for 25 minutes. So you know he's not going to slow down in this one against Darius. And he's going to have crazy good technique and proficiency everywhere. And Benil Dariush is very good. And he's been... He's funny. Dariush is kind of... He's one of those guys where it's not as though he's gotten tougher or his chin's gotten better. He's just a lot more willing to be in the fire now than he once was. And he hits hard. So it's been paying off for him lately. Actually, for a while, about the last seven fights. But Benil Dariush and Mateusz Gamrot is a low-key banger. And both of those guys deserve more spotlight because they're both very good and very fun fighters to watch. And they're just, you know, they're just not the sort of guys to make big noise in social media or on the mic or whatever. You know, they're not drama llamas, but... Their fights really do speak for themselves. Those guys are awesome. And then, uh, Caitlin Jukagin's on the main card, I guess. Whatever. For those of you who don't know and want a quick chuckle, Caitlin Jukagin's fight name is Blonde Fighter. Yeah. Also, she's not naturally blonde. So it's extra silly moving on Bilal Muhammad Sean Brady that's going to be great Bilal Muhammad has fantastic game planning ability 
He's a really smart guy. He's not exciting by any means. He's a very unexciting fighter, but he's very smart and very tactical. And he's fighting Sean Brady, who has great hands and is just an overall kind of a similar fighter in a lot of ways where he's not necessarily like jumping out off the page at you, where he's big hype fighter. But Sean Brady is real. He's legit. He's good everywhere. And they're probably going to have a very interesting fight. It may not be the most exciting, but it's almost guaranteed to be interesting. And that's pretty cool. As well as it's a decently meaningful fight for Welterweight, because Bilal is number five and Brady's number eight, and Brady's been on a bit of a tear lately. So that one's going to be cool to watch. Then we got middleweight. We have Mahmoud Muradov and Kyle Baraglio. Kyle Baraglio is a funny character. He's, he's quite good. Um, he's a cool fighter as far as the things he does. And he also has good English um, as a Brazilian, which you always love to see. He also, if, in case you are not recognizing the name, Caio Baraglio is the guy with the big free spirit tattoo on his neck. And he has the like fight or die on his arm and they're like just big jaggedy fonts that really stand out and look crazy. Um, but he's a great fighter despite, you know, having really absurdly standouty tattoos in places that you wouldn't expect him to not have that many everywhere else. You know, a guy that's got a big lettering tattoo across his neck, he has just a couple of, like, kanji on his chest. And that's kind of most of what he has on his torso. Bit of a weird guy, but he's a great fighter, so that one should be fun. Then uh, light heavyweight, Volkan Ozdemir and Nikita Krylov. They're kind of... Both of them are in a weird state right now towards the bottom of the top 10 at light heavy. Um, Volkan Ozdemir being a guy that when he first came into the UFC, he was just sparking people really fast and then he had the nickname No Time and he does the thing where he, you know, he points at his, at his wrist like he has a watch. And that's his, like, that's his thing because he's got no time. And then he proceeded to have a bunch of boring decisions showing that he absolutely does have the time. Um, but <laughs> he's fighting Nikita Krylov, who's just generally pretty solid overall. He's not like super exciting anywhere. He's just a good fighter um, who laughably lost to Paul Craig by beating up Paul Craig until he was triangled. <clears throat> Um, Paul Craig's another fighter. I'm just a, I just love his silly style. People who lose to Paul Craig should be embarrassed, but also shouldn't be at the same time because he's done it to really good fighters somehow. And he's just a really funny guy. But yeah, Ozdemir Krylov should be fun. Should be cool. Um, might be boring. I hope not. We'll see. Uh, Ozdemir has definitely turned up his aggression lately. So we'll see how that goes. He's definitely more of a striker, so Krilov might be able to control him on the ground. We'll see. Um, I say that with every fight. It's so annoying. Anyway. Tukagov and Lucas Almeida. Featherweights, unranked. Russian and Brazilian. Eh. 
Then two Russians, one of which is a, a Nurmagomedov. No idea if there's any relation. He looks like he's about 50. It's hard to tell with these guys sometimes. The chin beard is very off-putting. Then uh, Armin Petrosian and A.J. Dobson. Another couple guys I'm not terribly familiar with. Yeah, at middleweight, you know, you got to fill out the card when you have a big pay-per-view. This is what you got to do. Mohamed Mikhaev and Malcolm Gordon. Hopefully, Mohamed Mikhaev cannot just desperately hold on to a guy for three rounds like he did last time. Hopefully, he can, you know, if he's controlling a guy with grappling, maybe throw some strikes too. Just, just maybe. Wouldn't that be cool? What a crazy concept. Wow. It was incredibly frustrating watching him have that fight last time where he was just incredibly inactive while just desperately holding on to legs the whole time but not throwing any strikes. And I bet as a judge it was very frustrating too because they're like, well, do we give it to the other guy for landing awkward elbows? To behind him. And then Malcolm Gordon, another Canadian that I hope is good. Who knows, man. I mean, Mohamed Makayev is like a ridiculous favorite in this fight. And for a reason, because Malcolm Gordon hasn't had the best run in the UFC. His He lost his first two. And then he won a decision over the worst Figueredo, Francisco, who I believe is not in the UFC anymore. And then got a TKO based on arm injury against Dennis Bondar, who doesn't have a Wikipedia page. So understandably, Makayev is a massive favorite. But I, you know, I'm going to pull for the Canadian anyway, because... I have dumb hope anyway. I'm, I'm a fool. I'm a fool in a man's shoes. And then a couple of women's bantamweights that I don't remember. Carol Rosa, Lena Landsberg. Eh. Anyway, that's the card. That's the entire UFC 280 card. And there's some really cool stuff. Little bit of filler. Biggest question marks in fighting right now. We'll get some answers. Obviously, the most, the biggest one has been Olivera Makachev. I mean, people have been talking about that fight for, it feels like five years now. It's been quite some time people have been talking about that fight. And ever since Olivera got into title contention, people have been saying, well, what if, what if he fights Makachev? What happens? Because it's such. It's it's Khabib Tony. It's the Khabib Tony we never got. Because they're both the spiritual successors of both of those fighters, just a bit different. I wouldn't say Ma it's like Makachev is I would say Oliveira is Tony Tony 2.0, where Makachev is the beta test version of Khabib. Like he's not at that same, at least we haven't seen that he's at that same level 
Whereas Oliveira is everything Tony was at his peak and more. Just without a little bit of the chaos and creativity. Well, maybe just as much chaos, but a little less creativity. Um, but that fight's the big one that really like intrigues all of us. Because it's been a question for so long. And we all want to know so bad. And I'm just, I'm excited for it. I'm hyped for it, man. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just cool shit. Now, I have some questions that I actually, I put a little thing on Instagram. Be like, hey, you want to ask some questions? I'll answer them. And they're, I only got two, so it'll be quick. One of them is, do I live, one of them was, was from a Waikwisha? Yeah, uh, there's no name on the bio, so whatever. The question is, do you live in Reno or Grass Valley? And the answer is complicated. Um, right now, as of this week, I am living in Grass Valley for work for at least the next few days. And then afterwards, I and this whole time for the last couple of months, I've been living in Reno for a while. I've been living in Reno on the weekends, Grass Valley for work, three days out of the week. But at the end of this week, I'm going to be Reno full time because I've switched my work up. So I'm going to actually get to sleep in the same bed every night, which will be very, very nice. And then Bracken BMX asks, you going to the Burgess, da- Burgess Halloween Jam? And the answer is absolutely. I will do my absolute everything I can possibly do to make sure I get to go to the uh, Halloween Jam at Burgess. It's, uh, it's going to be a good time. Make sure that you get out there if you're in the area. This is the Burgess Skate Park in Reno I'm talking about. It's on Sunday the 30th, starting at noon. Um... Glenn from Vance Bicycle Center is going to be there, and he's going to bring a bunch of product, um, as far as I know. But uh, yeah, it's going to be rad. It's always a good time, and it's always worth going. So definitely get your butts out there. It's going to be rad. But uh, as far as that goes, like that's kind of it. That's all I got. Once I cut out some of the dead air and a lot of the ums and ahs it'll probably only be about an hour but um which honestly i'm surprised at i thought it was going to end up being longer trying to cover two cards but hey maybe i'm getting slightly better at this who knows but you know what i'm not good at i'm not getting better at is ending these things so i'm just going to end it with hafael sunsau is awesome and it makes me happy. Bye.